Welcome to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This podcast series is on a mission to showcase the invaluable contributions and innovations of women and girls who are shaping a future that is sustainable, greener, and livable for us all. From activists to scientists, entrepreneurs building new businesses to policymakers. Each episode offers a glimpse into the remarkable stories and unwavering determination of those working to address the urgent environmental challenges of our time. We are delighted to invite you to join us, listen to the episodes, follow us on social media, and check out our website, www.evoicesrising.com. My guest today is Osprey Oriel Lake, founder and executive director of Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. Osprey collaborates internationally with diverse coalitions of grassroots, BIPOC, and indigenous leaders and policymakers to champion and advocate for climate justice solutions. Notably, Osprey is an influential voice on the Executive Committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and the Steering Committee of Fossil-Free Non-Proliferation Treaty. Osprey also finds time to write and has recently released her second book, The Story is in Our Bones, How Worldviews and Climate Justice Can Remake a World in Crisis. And we'll be delving into that important issue in our conversation today. Osprey lives in the San Francisco Bay Area on coastal Miwok lands. This podcast is being recorded also in the Bay Area on Ilishon Ohlone lands. So Osprey, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. Thank you. Well, I'm really honored that you can join us today, and I'd like to start with Women's Voices. You founded WeCan, Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, in 2009 as an international solutions-based organization to engage women worldwide in policy advocacy, on-the-ground projects, trainings, movement building for global climate justice. So the question is why? Why is it crucial to specifically amplify women's voices for climate justice? So yeah, when I first started to get involved in the climate movement, one of the first things I did was I started to researching where would be a good entry point that would have an impact. And began to learn and realize, you know, with women who have stood before me and other colleagues, how important it is to include women's action ideas, feminist analysis into the climate discussion. And I'll just give a few examples. One study I found fairly recently shows that just a one unit increase in something that's called the Women's Political Empowerment Index, which is things like how Women are engaged in their country in politics or in social activities, uh, their ability to have voice in their communities. With just a one unit increase, you see an 11.51 degree decrease in carbon emissions, just from women having more power in their community. Not that everything's about carbon emission reductions, but it just shows you what happens when women mobilize we do a lot of work around forest protection and forest reforestation. 
as well as food sovereignty and food security. And again, when you look at the statistics, you'll see again and again that women are the ones really who are growing food for their communities all over the world. And when we look at issues of care for water in a lot of indigenous communities, you'll hear that women are the the key water protectors and key organizers around protection of water in their communities. But also we know from a lot of United Nations studies that any of these programs around the world that are focused on ensuring that we have water security, if you don't involve women in the programs, they don't work. The programs simply don't work because the women are the one collecting the water. The women are the ones who are monitoring the water levels and the safety of the water. I think it's really interesting to see from both the grassroots level to top policy decision makers, when you put women in power and you give them voice and agency, they're the ones who are really putting forward the best policies around the environment and social justice issues, as well as from the grassroots up. So across the board, it's just been so exciting to see the enormous power that women have. The flip side that is, unfortunately, due to our gender inequality in so many of our countries around the world, Um, While we see this incredible growth and power that women are having in terms of solutions, we're not seeing them being given space and voice and agency to express themselves and to do the work that they want to do and can do and are doing really well. Giving space and voice to women leaders is working and creating climate solutions is actually one of the motivations that I had for this podcast. I work with several organizations like Women's Earth Alliance and She Changes Climate. And not having a diversity of voices at the table is hindering us from changing the narrative. And if we want a new narrative for climate solutions, we need women's voices and gender equity voices at the table. So my next question is about your experience with representation at the COP meetings and specifically COP28. And for those people who don't know, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, It's an international meeting that's held every year to discuss global climate issues with representatives from around the world. And in 2023, it was held in Dubai. And I wanted to ask you, because I know you go to COP and you always go with a delegation of Indigenous women advocating for climate justice. So I wanted to ask you, what were, who were some of the people who went with you last year? And if there was any success or anything you felt that you achieved? Because I know there are a lot of problems with COP conferences, especially with leaders. But I just wanted to get your take on your experiences. There's a lot there. So I'll just start with a few things to weave together the conversation. Um, One, speaking of women's leadership there at this particular COP, and it's not unusual, it's sort of the pattern. At this particular COP, which is COP28, so governments have been meeting for 28 years on climate. We should be noting that. Right, yes. Not getting as nearly as far as we need to be. But there were 133 heads of state at the COP, and only 15 of those 133 were women. So it just shows you the depth of the gender inequality and the lack of women's voices in the decision-making spaces. In terms of our delegation, yes, every year we have a frontline and Indigenous women's delegation that we bring with us because we think it's absolutely vital that there are interventions. People are across the spectrum of whether civil society should be going to the COP or not, should we be boycotting the COP, all different ideas. And I, I think it's every, every group has to decide what is best for them to do. I agree with many different 
points of view on this topic. For the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, for us, it's really important to go. We've been involved in the negotiations for over a decade. And so we have very specific agendas that we're working on while we're there. And also it's an incredible opportunity to have interventions with world leaders and governments in a way that you have a lot of access, not all the access you want, but you do have access. And from my experience, from my little humble corner of the world, I see that civil society presence there is absolutely necessary or as bad as things are with the climate crisis, it would be even worse. So just to give a few examples, we were all in Paris for the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. 1.5 degrees was put into the text as the guardrail. That happened because massive civil society effort, as well as countries that are climate vulnerable. And that combination of countries that are climate vulnerable and massive effort by civil society for years caused that to be part of the formal negotiations. And that 1.5 degree guardrail has been critical in our advocacy ever since. There's a lot of things wrong with the Paris Climate Agreement. I could go on for two hours about that. But the point is we did achieve that and it has become something very valuable in our advocacy with governments and also with corporations and with financial institutions to hold them to that Paris Climate Agreement guardrail. For COP27 in Egypt, civil society pushed for decades and finally won on loss and damage and getting there to be a loss and damage fund by governments, meaning that countries who have created the least amount of emissions that are also experiencing the worst impacts of the climate crisis must have financial support and climate finance for the damages already occurring because of wealthy countries in the global north. So that was huge because it also puts out the basic narrative around the fact that we need justice. Climate justice has to be added into the narrative of solutions to climate. And when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about a very deep analysis around colonization, patriarchy, racism, capitalism, the wealthy countries extracting from the global south. All of that obviously is not in the statement of governments around loss and damage, but for civil society organizations, grassroots groups, frontline communities, that's all the energy and influence and intervention within that loss and damage fund. So that intervention was very important. And then to go to your question of this most immediate COP in Dubai, which I mean, it's very, very challenging because there is a co-option of the COP by the fossil fuel industry. Unmistakably, we keep seeing an increase and increase of fossil fuel lobbyists. So as an example, there was over 2,400 fossil fuel lobbyists at the COP. And this is why we have these campaigns like kick polluters out. What is the fossil fuel industry doing there? That the president in Dubai was uh, Sultan Al-Jabir, who's the CEO of a fossil fuel company. The next COP, they're going to have another CEO of a fossil fuel company. So in other words, governments, the fossil fuel industry, corporations are using this space to meet and continue to kick the can down the road, avoid the main topic at hand, which is phasing out fossil fuels. So this is another reason why civil society needs to be there because of civil society being at Dubai at COP28, again, with climate vulnerable countries, we were able to push to actually get governments to finally state that there needs to be a transition off of fossil fuels. Now, is the way it's stated well? No. 
Is it sufficient? No. Are there lots of loopholes and problems in how the COP28 outcome happened? Absolutely. But the fact is we forced fossil fuels center stage onto COP28 and they did not want that. OPEC put out a statement that was leaked to the press, letting all member states know, don't get phase out, no fossil fuel phase out, phase down into any of the outcome documents. Keep focusing on carbon emission reductions. So like there's a huge fight going on here and we were still able to get that language into the documents. So is it some huge victory? Do we think we're going there to resolve the climate crisis? No. Climate crisis is being resolved in many other ways, but it's an important space. It's one of the advocacy policy spaces to advocate in and an ecosystem of things that need to happen at this point and one that needs to be kept on the table. And we were really honored to bring with us Casey Camp Hornick from the Ponca Nation, an amazing, powerful activist. She's a mentor and leader, just an incredible force of nature herself who comes from Oklahoma, where there's a huge amount of fracking going on in her community, who's been dealing with missing and murdered Indigenous women because of the fossil fuel industry coming into her territory and the harms that come to the Indigenous women and two-spirit people because of uh, the fossil fuel workers in their community. We were able to support Celia Jabira, who is an incredible leader from Brazil, who was just elected to government in Brazil, along with other indigenous leaders from Amiga, another indigenous group. So, you know, we had women from the global South and the global North, indigenous leaders really representing their communities, being able to speak for themselves, being engaged in these negotiations. And I just think it's so important that governments hear directly from the communities they're harming and directly hear from women land defenders and water protectors exactly what's happening on the ground. Thank you for such a strong statement. It really made clear why we need to be speaking up and why you need to be there. So I just want to thank you for your work and for showing up at COP. Now I wanted to just move on and talk about your book, your latest book that you've just written, The Story is in Our Bones, How Worldviews and Climate Justice Can Remake the World in Crisis. What led you to write this book? And then can you give us an overview about what you mean by worldviews and how are they going to help us remake the world? I wrote the book primarily during the lockdown phase of the pandemic. And it was a way for me to go upstream, in essence, from a lot of the daily work I do at WeCan, which, as you mentioned earlier on, we do everything from forest protection to reforestation projects food sovereignty work, all this advocacy work. We do work to do divestment work and getting banks to divest from fossil fuels and invest in the just transition and all kinds of different work and media work. We do direct action, nonviolent direct action as well. And I wanted to take a moment to, as I say, go upstream and really have a deep dive into how did we get into this crisis where we do have solutions to the issues that we're facing, social and ecological issues. It's not that we don't have solutions. And, you know, I wanted to look at this deeper analysis of the systems and the worldviews and the mindset that has really gotten us to continue to be in these crises. Because even if, let's say, we resolve the climate crisis tomorrow, if we still continue to live the way that we have been in our relationship with one another, and with the earth, we would still be extracting, we would still have an extractive economy, 
we would still have racism, we would still have colonization, we would still be imperialistic. And so I wanted to really get at where are these systems coming from? And how did we get so out of balance with nature? How did we get so out of balance with one another? Where did white supremacy come from? What are the roots of a lot of these crises? And how do we begin to untangle them? Because in my own experience as a human with the troubles that we all have as humans, I have learned and I have observed in communities as well, and many knowledge sources, that if we're really going to walk forward in a healthy and just way, we actually need to look to the past and understand the root causes and really unwind those traumas and unwind the root causes and understand how we arrived at the current crises that some have termed these poly crises that we're now facing, these, these crises that are all intersecting and interconnected at this point. And so the book is a deep dive into that. I would add that though there's a lot of research in it, there's also some memoir in it, there's poetry, there's quite a range of topics because I wanted to come at it both from an ecological perspective, a scientific perspective, but also a perspective of mythology and storytelling and narrative and artistry. And so all of that is really braided together so that we could sort of have a full experience of humanity and our relationship to earth over time as full human selves, which is not only political or only social, but also spiritual and emotional and many other things. So it's filled with stories, but also really getting at this question of what are the root causes and how do we then generate a new narrative once we understand what we need to change. So this is your question. How did we get here and how did we get so out of balance? You did use a lot of your own stories and memories, and that actually added a very interesting layer to the narrative. I think a lot of our out of balance comes from a dis disconnect with nature and the systems we have to extract resources from nature instead of living in relationship with nature. But of course, most of us in the dominant culture did not grow up with that kind of relationship, the, the kind that indigenous people have. So you're clarifying how the indigenous perspective is part of this worldview that can remake the world. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, a couple of things. One, I do highlight a lot of different indigenous people's knowledge. I've been very, very honored to have time with indigenous peoples. And of course, we have respectfully gotten their permission to share what is in the book or quoted them directly from other sources. So I think it's also really important how we approach knowledge and are respectful and not extractive in how we, we share stories. And so the book really also lifts up in honoring that 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth is in the hands and lands of indigenous peoples and their territories because of their relationship with the land and how much we really need to, at this point, sit at the feet of indigenous people and learn. It's really a time for us to learn from indigenous peoples. They've been trying to convey this information to us for a very, very long time. So I think that's a big component of this worldview shift. And then I think another component of it is also our own responsibility to, no matter how tattered and torn and frail, to go back to our own ancestries where we can begin to reclaim histories that I call pre-patriarchal or pre-colonized times. 
because we all have that in our own lineage and heritage. And I think that's part of our responsibility to not only learn from Indigenous peoples, but also how do we, who are not Indigenous, reclaim our stories and also make ourselves more intact. It's a process. I think a lot of the destruction that we see in the world is from this vast emptiness and feeling of orphanage and not belonging that comes from not being connected to the land. And some of that is not complicated. Some of that can be taking more time in nature, making friends with trees, making friends with the animals, having gardens. I mean, some of this is so sweet to do. Some of the solution, I sometimes laugh thinking about these incredible complicated negotiations we get into at the COP or these battles that we're in legally to save this or that forest and these conversations that we have with financial institutions and what are false solutions, all these complex policies. And another part of my mind is, can we just go outside and sit by the river and watch the birds and remember that we are part of this incredible web of life and remember our humble reciprocal relationship to these living relatives that are life. That part is not complicated, but we also need to do that part. But another part of it is also understanding that it is our job to also learn more about our own histories. And so I try to share a lot about how I go about doing that in the book and also share some of the research I've done of what pre-patriarchal, pre-colonialized cultures from the dominant society look like. In other words, a simple example people can relate to is all across Europe, you'll see ancient stone wheels. These were clearly ancestors that had a relationship with the calendar of nature and the calendar of time and were deeply relating to the land. Or I give a lot of examples about language and how a lot of our old languages connect us to the seasons. So through language and ceremony and even old recipes and songs, we can find these ancestral roots that take us into the land where we can, as in the title, in our bones, that story is still in our bones and it's still in our ancestry. I think that's also part of the journey that we're in is retelling these stories, regenerating these stories, while we also build a relationship with nature every single day. And remember that we're on this incredibly magnificent planet that is not inside our computer, but is right outside our front door. And with that knowledge, we can begin to heal that gap, that orphanage that desperately needs to be healed. Thank you for that. I really like the fact that you're speaking to the reader with this sense that this is what you can do. I mean, being able to go back and connect with your own lineage and your own ancestry. I can think of the women who came before me who are not Indigenous and how they related to the land, farming, caring water, caring for families, have, gathering recipes, and feeling all those connections. These are the kind of connections that your book provides. I think it's a collective journey. We're all in it. We're all literally working to, as I was saying in my book, like, well, like one part of the world is burning, another part of the world is being birthed, and it's a world that we're all summoning, that we're all really reaching for in terms of being healthy and just and fair and equitable and healthy for the earth. So we're in such an unusual time of uncertainty where there's so much violence 
and so much destruction. And simultaneously, there is this other world just being birthed and imagined and being lived by many people and being expressed in so many amazing ways. They're both happening at the same time. I think that's so important, even when we do feel and we do see the destruction that's happening all around us, that we can understand that a rebirth or a reshaping of new ideas is also happening at the same time. And your book is one of those books, I think, that can guide us and give us hope when we think about all these things that are going on to remake the world. Yes. And I think within that context, I would add that, you know, as we do that, for me, I think it's really important to come from a perspective also of understanding what our role is, because no one is experiencing devastations, whether they're ecological or social or otherwise, evenly or not. And so I think it's really important as white people, understanding our role is different than black and brown and indigenous peoples, and whose voices are we centering? And when, as we're making this change, understanding privilege, understanding white supremacy, understanding that we have to, as they say, lift all boats. I think that, you know, in that context also, just taking a moment to, you know, at this point, every day thinking about our sisters and brothers in Palestine and understanding that it is a result of all the things that we've been talking about so far. As a result, we continue, as I was saying at the beginning, these patterns of very violent systemic oppressions. And we're going to have to look at those roots. To me, we're not going to be able to go through the transformation we need to. So while we're talking about the, the birth of the world that we want, the birth of the world that I want involves justice. It involves health for all people and the earth. And that means going through the fire, if you will, there's no bypassing poof over into the garden there and only a few people get to garden. Everyone's got to come along, which means there's got to be a lot of um, dismantling of harmful systems to then build systems that are healthy and equitable. And so I think that's also really important to see, you know, we might be over here as a result of a lot of oppressive histories that have been unresolved and unattended to in this disconnection. And we want to be over here, but there's a space in between. And this is where we need to take our time in my perspective, right in here, where there's a lot of personal work to do. And there's a lot of community work to do. And there's a lot of political work to do. And there's a lot of listening to do to frontline communities and those who have been oppressed and marginalized. It's time to listen to their leadership. Absolutely. Listening is so key. And speaking of listening, I, I'd like to highlight a section on your website, Women Speak. The website is wecaninternational.org, and we'll have a link on our show notes. This is a wonderful resource for listening to women speak about the work they're doing. Could you say something about that? I started Women Speak, I'd like to say maybe six or seven years ago, precisely for that reason it's a storytelling database, and it's, you can find it on our website at www.wecaninternational.org. On the menu, it says Women Speak, and you can go there, and there's 14 different categories where you can find, at this point, thousands of stories by and about women and gender-diverse leaders and what they're doing on these issues. We're talking about everything from Indigenous rights 
to forest protection, to water protection, to biodiversity, to climate policy, uh, to new economy, a whole range of topics that look comprehensively at social and ecological issues and the solutions that women and gender diverse leaders are offering. And so you can look at these different categories and scroll through and see all this research that's been done. And as I say, stories written by women, but also about them. And it's really inspiring. And also how people resolved food security issues in their community, in different countries, in droughts and hands-on things to philosophical ideas, to new ideas about feminist economies and how do they work. It's a really inspiring space to, to listen to different leaders. And we do center Indigenous Black and Brown voices primarily there. So again, it's another space to listen and learn and you know, help us imagine this future and what we're, we're working to build. Thank you. It's a great space, really. I find a lot of inspiration from it as well. So speaking of inspiration, I wanted to move on to the rights of nature, which you are intimately involved with and is very inspiring. So could you tell us about the rights of nature? There's several chapters in the book about rights of nature. One of the things that I love about rights of nature is it is a very broad framework that can really address both social and ecological harms. So the idea of rights of nature is basically that right now, due to the things we're talking about, a lack of listening to indigenous people and respecting indigenous rights, being disconnected from nature as an animate living being and colonization, we basically look at nature as property, as if humans are above nature. And so this whole system of property law has created a complete failure for environmental laws to really do what they're supposed to do, which is to quote unquote, protect the environment. So we have regulatory laws and what they mainly do is regulate how much harm we're gonna to do to the environment, to the river or to the forest. They don't stop the harm, they regulate it. And most of that regulation, as we know, is being done by corporations and governments who are more concerned about profit than actually protecting nature and the web of life and future generations. And so rights of nature really turns laws upside down and says, no, we're going to actually see nature not as property, but as a rights-bearing entity. And by that, meaning that right now, if you go to a court of law, a forest is not being represented. A river is not being represented because it's property of a human being. It doesn't have its own standing. And so what rights of nature does is give the ecosystem, whether it's a forest or a river or a mountain, standing in court. It's very exciting to realize that it's like a companion to the fact that we have universal Declaration on the Rights of Humans, we really need a universal declaration on the rights of nature, on the rights of Mother Earth, which is something our organization and also we're part of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature we've been advocating for for years. And it's also important to realize that it's not just an idea. It's actually one of the fastest growing Earth jurisprudence movements in the world and has been formalized as an example in 2008. Ecuador became the first country in the world to put rights of nature into their constitution. So it's in their constitution. And we have won cases in Ecuador protecting different rivers and ecosystems using rights of nature laws. 
Could you tell the story, like of the, the how yeah, that that I really love, which falls into the rights of nature category? You know, there's different ways of people using that term, rights of nature, but one is also uh, giving personhood to nature, seeing nature as our relative. One story I really love is about the Wanganui River in New Zealand, where for over a hundred years the Maori people have been fighting to protect the Wanganui River. Fairly recently, they were able to, in the last decade, be able to make an agreement with the New Zealand government for a settlement where there's a representative from the government and then also the Wanganui tribe to be custodians and guardians of the Wanganui River, which they see as their living relative. And so the river has personhood, meaning it has the same rights as a person. So you can't harm just like you couldn't harm a human, you cannot harm the river. And they have a beautiful saying, I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And I was really fortunate some years ago, and I write about this in the book, to go there on a fact-finding mission with other rights of nature colleagues, a beautiful organization called Movement Rights, did the original research on this. And then we did a delegation together going to New Zealand and spent time with the Maori and really learned how did they legally accomplish this amazing feat of giving personhood to the Wanganui River. So that's just one of, of many cases. There's cases in Colombia protecting the Amazon forest. So all over the world, it's being in local communities to the national level, different cases around rights of nature and a growing interest in this because we cannot continue the current legal frameworks with the earth because they're clearly not working or we wouldn't be in this climate and environmental crisis if the laws were working. So they're not. So we need a new earth jurisprudence, a new system of law where we are not above nature, that we are part and particle of nature, where nature has rights, where ecosystems have the right to thrive and be healthy and to be able to reproduce and to be able to be their own respected entity. It's a very powerful movement. When we do go to the COP, we usually always have sessions on rights of nature to continue, again, to bring a new narrative, new interventions, new ideas into these spaces that must transform. And I think rights of nature is very powerful in that sense. And I'll add just one last thing, because one of the things also that we've done around the rights of nature movement is we've held these tribunals where we have cases that are heard and they're not legally binding, but they're a way to teach and demonstrate what rights of nature looks like. And we brought a lot of land defenders there because there also needs to be a voice and protection for land defenders who are being criminalized for their work to protect the land. And so there also is, in addition to the fact primarily of getting the earth center in these conversations, also the people protecting nature and ensuring that they have the right to stand up for the land. And we have to have a space for those land defenders to have protection and voice. And it's a way to really move us out of seeing nature as resource, as you were saying earlier, but the source of life instead of resource, the source of life. And so we need to stop the commodification and financialization of nature. We need to move nature out of the marketplace. Our rivers are not for sale. Our forests are not for sale. We need to completely transform our legal and economic systems away from this idea of ownership and financialization of the web of life. 
It's simply not working. Everyone can clearly see that. A beautiful summation of the rights of nature, that all of nature has the right to exist, it's not for sale, and it's in our best interest to honor that. Is there anything else you would like to tell us about your work or about your book? Please. Well, it's just such a pleasure to be here. And I don't know why. I just thought that with your permission, I would read the chapter titles to the book just so that people could get a sense of what's in there, if that's all right with you. Because Oh, absolutely. No, I, I would love it. Actually, I was going to read the, the first one, I think, was like Worldviews as a Portal. Is that? I'll read the chapter. There's sections, and then within the section, there are chapter titles. So it kind of reads like a poem, but it'll give people a sense of the journey. And for me, it's a collective journey, as I said. I mean, worldviews is a mammoth topic. You know, I even open the book by saying, We're, this is a conversation. This is a conversation. The opening section is entering the terrain of climate justice and worldviews. And chapter one is worldviews are a portal. Chapter two is the story is in our bones, origin stories to remake our world, which you know gets into what we were talking about with going back to our original instructions and our original place in the earth. Chapter three is ancient trees and ancestral warnings, really getting into how when we look back at a lot of the stories from our ancestors, we were warned about this time and about keeping our conduct with nature balanced. Chapter four, a visionary declaration from the Amazon. And I really love this. I get into the living forest declaration of the Ecuadorian people and the indigenous people's view of how forests should be managed and cared for. The next section is going for the deep dive here on these topics of dismantling patriarchy, racism, and the myth of whiteness. Let's get into it. Do what we can. And ancient mother and women rising. So the first chapter is she rises. The next chapter is tracing and healing the assault on women. The next chapter is listening to black and indigenous women and debunking the myth of whiteness, listening to what our indigenous and black sisters have to teach us about this. And then the final chapter in that section is worldviews of our ancestral lineages. Again, kind of going back to our conversation about like, how do we heal this and how do we get into our ancestral knowledge? The next section is called Reciprocity, A Thousand Act of Responsibility and Love. And this chapter starts, this section starts with a chapter called Offering and Tending to the Land, giving a lot of examples about traditional ecological knowledge and how do we care for the land. And a lot of stories from Weekend about reforestation work and just really different examples. And chapter 10 is Composting the Cultural Toxins of Colonization and Capitalism. Again, going back to the roots of colonization and capitalism, how do we change that mindset of colonization and capitalism that drive forward this destruction socially and ecologically? And then the last chapter of that section is reciprocal relationships with people in the land. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And then the next section is living in balance with the natural laws of the earth, where I go into rights of nature as a systemic solution. And then the final section of the book is called the land is speaking, language, memory, and a storied living landscape. And here we go into how worldviews are conjured by words and even the words that we use, words that we use, and do they connect us to the earth or into these oppressed systems? How do our words actually impact our thinking and our worldviews? The next chapter is song lines to the landscape. The next chapter is building a relationship with the storied land. 
So that's actually where it ends, building a relationship with the storied land and how we can get back into this connection with nature that we started the whole conversation about getting connected, but like where the stories are, the stories are in the bones, in our bones or in the land and how we embody this new way of being that is really transformative so that we are living in a healthy relationship with one another and the earth. So that's that's the arc of the journey that, that the book goes on. It's such a poetry, as you were saying, of the poetry and the storytelling that actually undergirds this whole complicated, complex situation that we have. It's such a joy to be able to connect to stories and honor them. And I want to thank you so much for your work and this book. <laughs> Congratulations on that. We will definitely post links to all of that on our website. And uh, I always ask my guests if there's another woman or women who inspire you. I know that would be like... <laughs> oh, you have two more hours? All right. Uh, I'll name a few, but like that's my one of my favorite topics. So <laughs> I would say Casey Camp Hornick from the Paka Nation, who I mentioned. I would mention Nima Namandu, who is uh, a coordinator with us, who is a force of nature in the DR Congo, where we're reforesting and, and protecting 1.6 million acres of old growth forests. Uh, Vandana Shiva, Jackie Patterson, who is an incredible friend, but an amazing woman who is leading the Chisholm Legacy Project, really uplifting Black women's leadership. So many Indigenous women that I love, Patricia Gualinga uh, from the Sariaco people. I'm going to stop there. Well, thank you. No, we began with women's voices. We began with women's voices. And thank you that we can end and we could, with women's and, voices. And thank you for mentioning, you had mentioned Women's Earth Alliance, since we're in the area with them. They're amazing. There's also amazing women's groups, the Women and Gender Constituency that works at the climate negotiations. We do. There's just also amazing, remarkable women's groups also doing tremendous work. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. The guests on our podcast are dedicated to the creation of a world that supports all life on this planet. Their stories are informative and inspirational and are meant to give you, the listener, hope that our collective efforts can bring about a better world for us all. Thank you for listening and joining us on the journey. Remember to sign up on our website, www.evoicesrising.com. And until next time, keep striving for a better world.